With that, I am going to reflect upon kind of four categories, the best that I can muster, from my time in college ministry of prayers, and then how to uh, move on if I'm in this category, what the next step looks like. And then from there, just to generally talk about preparation for prayer, something that we're going to call remote preparation and proximate preparation, and then the actual act of praying. So first, whenever we talk about prayer, we have to talk about why pray in the first place. Why pray in the first place? And so... This brings me to my first category of prayer. Is a person who never prays. They know their prayers. They know the Our Father, the Hail Mary. And maybe they even pray at night before they go to sleep because they felt the habit. But when I'm talking about prayer, I'm talking about what the tradition calls mental prayer. And St. Teresa's Adler defines mental prayer as simply of knowing the one whom I approach and addressing him. That can be with the words of the Hail Mary or the Our Father. But to say those words with understanding and approaching such. For this person needs to understand what prayer is. And so for that, I have a movie on cue that describes prayer very well. For those who did not grow up in the 90s, it's called The Born Identity. Nick knows. Okay. Um, so The Born Identity is Matt Damon, who has like super apt... CIA abilities. He's like the baddest man, one of the baddest men on the planet. There is one problem. We're going to figure it out as we play this clip. All right. Thank you for your nice hearts. No, I, I don't have the papers. I don't have any papers. I lost them. I feel like you have to see the loaf. You change your style. You can start. You always fall off. Hey, action. Didn't that make sense? Um, duh. Now if you never pray, you know exactly what you need to do. Um, sleep on a park bench, hope someone approaches you, use the language that you've learned in your subconscious, and then beat them up. So, 
Okay, backstory. Jason Bourne is just found in like the ocean by some fishermen, face down. Basically, the fishermen think that they're picking up a dead body. Jason Bourne is brought onto the ship. He regains consciousness once they pull out some device from him. no idea who he is. No idea who he is. At this point, he still does not know who he is. But in that moment when he gains consciousness, it's a gift to you, um, he kind of, as you saw, recognizes these things that he can do. Like he knows whatever language that was. He's surprised that he can understand it and then speak it. He finds like he's got super quick cat-like reflexes. He just grabs the night sit, does that. And then he disarms the pistol. Like, where did I get that from? And then he runs away. The person who does not pray, what distinguishes them from the rest of everybody else? Jason Bourne is, again, like the baddest of the baddest CIA agents that there is. However, even though he can speak this foreign language, defend himself, his acting like intelligence skills, is incredibly fit, has amazing endurance, is all of these traits, he does not know who he is. And the rest of the movie, he is, and the rest of the series, it's a great series, he's tortured by who is Jason Bourne. Again, no idea. And this is what I can't emphasize enough, and why I think it's talked about wrongly in prayer. Maybe you've heard in talks about prayer that, well, if you pray, you'll start to be joyful. If you pray, then you're going to start to feel at peace. Because you're not praying, you are missing this. The one thing that's fundamental about the person who does not pray, that we can say across the board, is that the person who does not pray does not know who he is. That is fundamental. And this is just a very philosophical concept, that if I don't know where I come from, and I ultimately come from God, then I don't know who I am. Any time that we try to define what something is, we define its origin and its end. You know, who is this dog? This dog is the son of uh, this, you know, this sire, and then, you know, came from this female dog. Um, Who used that one? Uh, and. <laughs> And has the end and the purpose of hunting. You know, like, we know what that dog is. The same way man cannot answer the question of his own existence apart from God and for the end of which he's made. To worship and to know God and to know him as truth. So what should the person who never prays do? What is their next You've perhaps heard me talk about this before if you were an upperclassman, but there's this beautiful 
passage uh, in the Catechism talking about the progression of prayer in salvation history. So right here, I have a picture of Adam. Now, this is what we call in the business post-lapsarian Adam. And you'll know why in a second. Because he has a crowny face. He's sad. This is after the lapse, after the fall. Pre-lapsarian Adam. We'll turn that around upside down. Alas. We're left with post-lapsarian Adam. Sad. And the thing about post-lapsarian Adam is that we know he's got some new clothes. That covers up his upper thigh. His stick upper thigh. That's a big thing. Now, to post-lapsarian Adam, God, says, where are you? He's looking for him. And Adam hides. But as time passes, there is a new Adam that comes. who says, here I am, Lord. I come to do your will. Prayer fundamentally for the person who never prays. And this is something that if we're talking about fundamentally, applies to all prayers, all people, is this gradual unveiling of one's weakness, trying to hide from God, and to gradually present ourselves to God through, and we'll get through this, but through the Ten Commandments, Prophets. The same thing with the law and the prophets, till eventually we live more deeply in Christ. We say, Here I am, Lord, I come to do your will. Now, I will get to this why keeping the commandments is important for prayer in a bit. But before moving on, I just want to read this beautiful quote to reinforce this idea to the person who never prays that they are desperately in need of prayer from a book by a man named Romano Wardini called The Practice of Prayer. 
It's kind of a, a convoluted quote, but it's very beautiful. So if you pay attention, uh, you'll get a lot out of it. Medical authorities point out that people whose attitude is exclusively extrovert, who are carried from one sensation to another, whose thoughts, conversation, work, struggles, and desires are mainly directed toward external goals, soon reach a state of exhaustion and confusion. To prevent this, life must flow into directions. They must renew itself from inner roots, there to gather new strength and resilience. Modern man is in danger of losing his innermost center, which gives stability to his personality and direction to his way of life. Behind the facade of talk and ceaseless activities, he becomes unsure of himself beneath his self-assured persona. There is an ever-increasing anxiety. To counteract this trend, he must rediscover the point of inner support from which he can issue forth into the world and to which he may return again and again. In other words, if we don't pray, we are fake. Fundamentally, philosophically, you cannot disagree with that. If you do not pray, you are fake. Because my very existence issues from God, to whom I must reveal myself, and needs to go towards God. Everything else is a self-assured persona, which is similar to our friend Jason Bourne. We can be this collection of personality, this collection of skills, this collection of charisma, but fundamentally, we do not know who we are. We must know from whom we come, and we must go to him regularly, because we will forget him. Which leads me into the second category. And along with this, I want to tell the story that recaps all salvation history, the prodigal son. If you remember the parable of the prodigal son, the man leaves, he comes back home, but only whenever he comes to his senses. Or as the writers say, he comes back into himself. This is the first movement of prayer that's necessary for all of us. We must come back into ourselves. He asks himself the fundamental question of his existence. Am I happy? I'm eating where pigs crack. Am I happy? Nope, not. So then, in coming to himself, he's able then to go back to God. But to the person who occasionally prays, this is a fun category. Because there's all kind of different Words, excuses that will come to come from this person, and we know that. We know that. I'm going to pass that. I'm sorry. I made false promises. Occasionally, prays. Well, I don't want to do anything regular. I want to pray when I feel like it because I want my prayer to be sincere. Um, I don't want to pray. I don't want to like bother God. You know, if I pray too much, I feel like I'm just asking God for 
stuff. I don't want to bother God. I should be good on my own. I think to both of these, there's some real fundamental problems. So, to the first, I only want to pray whenever I feel like it. This goes back to the analogy that I used with Father Broussard's talk. We cannot trust ourselves. Like, we, we start off right here denying the very source of our own existence. We're all born very messed up. We're all born very messed up. None of us is born a saint. And so what that means is that we can't trust our own senses. Again, whenever I have a cold and I have a fever, I feel like jumping into a bath full of mint chocolate chip ice cream and eating my way out. But I can't trust that feeling. I just can't. Because it's bad, it's disordered. Negotiating with that is impossible. And the fundamental reason why is because whenever we are living as post-lapsarian Adam, and the guys that have done BCB are going to understand this, we, our will is weakened and our intellect is darkened to we, where we are turned upside down. And man is, consists of three parts. He has his appetites, his desires, he has his will, and he has his intellect. This is us in our fallen state. You know, you want to go to bed. There's a problem. You are knee-deep in Parks and Rec in like five episodes. And the other knee, again, is back in the mint chocolate chip ice cream. Because your appetites are ruling you. And then, but your will is saying, we've got to go to bed. We have class in the morning. But it's weak. Because your appetite is weak. But then your intellect is darkened and, is, and sees this weak will and says, I can operate on three hours of sleep. I know that if I like set this news button for six times, I'll get up in six times, and then I'll be good. Right? Like we are governed this way. The thing is, because we are governed by our appetites as fallen people, we are never going to want to pray unless we have real regret. And if we do want to pray, then we're probably not desiring God, but we are desiring a consolation of God. The reason is because we're living out of our senses. We're going from one sense gratification to the next. And fundamentally, God is beyond our senses. Fundamentally, God is beyond our senses. So, if we are the person who says, I only pray whenever I feel like it, lest my prayer be insincere, then we are fooling ourselves because we are not desiring God. We are desiring another sense gratification that happens to be gained by a spiritual exercise. This is what St. John the Cross calls spiritual gluttony. Spiritual gluttony. So that I only want to be close to God. It satisfies my appetites, but my will is not changed. 
and my intellect is no more enlightened, where I'm not turned right side up at all. And so for that reason, um, yeah, that was planned. Um, for that reason, we need to make the ruthless desire, the ruthless resolution to never, 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 never not pray. Basically, make the, make the ruthless resolution, resolution to pray. Because the thing is, your flesh is a terrorist. And we don't negotiate with terrorists. Say it with me. We don't negotiate with terrorists. Very good. All right. We don't negotiate with terrorists here. This is what will happen to you if you have not prayed in the morning. You're going to want to go. You're going to go into your room at night. You'd be like, man, it's a good day. Can't wait to watch some YouTube. And then this little guy, little angel on your shoulder, is going to say, oh, wait, you didn't pray yet. And then your flesh is going to say, oh, gosh, I'm so freaking tired. I can't do anything. I couldn't pray right now. And then you're going to say, well, you know, I made the resolution to pray. And then your flesh is going to say, okay, okay, let's go pray. You're going to sit down in your prayer chair, you're going to come to Our Lady of Wisdom, and you are all of a sudden going to imagine that in this moment, if you were to stop and not pray right now, you could be the most productive person that you've ever been in your entire life. You are going to be able to roll up the syllabus into the size of a Q-tip and insert it into your mind and gather all of the information necessary for the rest of the semester. And that if you do this now and tomorrow, you'll be able to break double. It's going to be fine, but you have to do it now. And then you'll say, no, 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 wait, that's not real, that's not real. But as you go to sit down and consider the scripture had in front of you, you think, wait a second, my dishwasher uses hot water to wash the dishes. My kitchen is on fire right now. It's on fire. I have to go. And so then you'll think, my gosh, I never have to check the hot water heater at my house. Now would be a great time to do it. I have so much energy. Now's the time to do it. But... You say, no, 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 I must persevere. And then you recognize something even deeper, some deeper anxiety. You're like, wow, I didn't pray at all today. I didn't even think about it. I'm a pretty bad person. And then, to stifle that, you'll say, oh, wait, I know all these other people in my life, and they're terrible because they don't pray. And I know they don't pray. And that's going to scare you. Because now you're in front of Jesus and you're judging him. And you're going to want to say, nope, I don't want to continue praying because now I'm judging people. Now I'm thinking poorly of them. And then you have to persevere. But then from that, you're going to wonder all of these other bad things like the people that have hurt me. All these negative thoughts are going to come up to the surface of your consciousness as you're praying. And you're going to wonder, why in the world did I stop to pray at all? I feel worse. 
Then when I left my room, I could have just not paid attention to any of this and just watched him YouTube. It might have never even surfaced up. But this is the point, is that it was in there in the first place. And God has already known it. It's just now you're realizing it. The journey to prayer, like the parable of the prodigal son, is not so much this journey simply upward, as it is first this journey downward. At first, the man says, I'm hungry. I'm tired of eating where the pigs crap. And then when he encounters God, he encounters the Father, he recognizes just how bad of a son he's been. And that's what happens to us whenever we pray so often. All of that stuff gets to the surface. And do we become strong? Not at first. In fact, we become pretty weak. But we recognize in that weakness God's strength. With that, um, wow. Right now, guys, I wish you could experience this. I just had the biggest brain fart I've ever had in a talk. <laughs> I can't think of the next thing I was going to say. Yeah. Just give me one moment. Okay. So, when all of that comes to service, I remember what I was going to say. We have an invaluable encounter with Jesus. Because we finally understand who he is and our need for him. There was a guy I was in seminary with, Father Travis Abadie, who famously said this. This was before I was in seminary, so this really whet my appetite to enter. He said, in seminary, your soul is like a bowl of dirty water. And it's placed in a pot. And in the seminary, the stove is turned on. And throughout your formation, you notice as the heat is applied, all the impurities rise to the very top of the water. And then you are ordained. Like, oh, wait, wait, does it go away? I mean, the, the honest answer is, yes, some of it goes away, but you become more and more aware of all of it. But this is just an allegory of life of prayer. That as we pray, we become more and more aware of our weaknesses. But where that awareness of our weakness comes is all the deeper awareness for the need for Jesus. One of the things that I read about in spiritual books and then was surprised to find when it happened in my own life is whenever I was ordained a transitional deacon, my confessions got longer, not shorter. And that was because, sure, I was praying more and living more of this ministerial life, and I was taking promise of celibacy and to pray the bravery daily and to you know, assist in the living. So on and so forth, everything that came along with that. But is this deeper awareness? my witness as coming in contact with Jesus in his church. Basically, the more that you love both the Lord and your neighbor, the more you're going to recognize how poorly you love. It's like this truck 
that my dad had, that he had given to my brother, Rene. It was um, this old, this is like GMC. It looked really good from the outside. For a long time, some of you students may remember, I had this truck, 2006 Tundra. His name was Gil. Uh, he's named after seminarian Gil. Uh, it was this movement that we had at seminary to try to name all things Gil. It started and ended with my truck, so only my truck is named Gil. Um, but Gil did not look good. He's a 2006 Toyota Tundra, but he was trusty. He had 250,000 miles on him until I decided to be even more cheap, changed the oil myself, and burned the O-rings in the engine. But my brother had this one truck, and it was my dad's. It was, it was not a 2006, but it was a 2010 or 2008 GMC. It's just black truck, looked great. And by all accounts, I would have preferred that truck, except whenever he took it to 60 miles an hour, it started to putter. You know what I'm talking about, starter shape. And then eventually he had the 65, and like things start to go wrong. And then it probably, you know, if you took it up to 80, you would catch on fire. <laughs> and similarly, whenever we expose ourselves regularly before the Lord, and don't pray whenever we feel like it, but pray especially when we don't, then we start to recognize what's wrong with the engine. We start to recognize what's wrong with the engine. We start to recognize our need for Jesus. And so that we don't desire him just because he gives us peaceful and joyful feelings, but because we desire more for ourselves than peaceful and joyful feelings. We desire salvation. We desire to be actually transformed. And we have the faith, or at least we desire the faith, to believe that Jesus can do it. That's what happens whenever we don't pray when we just feel like it. But we remain this ruthless, almost legalistic Desire to never, 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 never not pray in the day. We come to actually recognize our desire and our need for Jesus. So there is, I'm going to detour for the, the uh, no, actually, I'm going to stay with the parable of the prodigal son here. Um, this is, did I have an eraser? Oh, it's right here in front of me. I promise. I got 2015 vision in my right eye in high school. Just saying. Uh, that was 13 years ago. Okay. So third, this is a category of person that I've run into. Praise regularly. Stuck in mortal sin. person prays regularly, but is stuck in mortal sin. Now, for this person, the parable of the prodigal son can be kind of frustrating because you don't know what happens after the son comes home and has the feast. We experience this in confession over and over. But if you kind of get old, I'm stuck habitually in moral sin. I'm just gonna close this. So 
Because it's like, okay, I get it. God is the opportunity to feast. But I keep on going back to the pigsty. This is where we start to make this transition into keeping the Ten Commandments. Into keeping the Ten Commandments. The danger of the person who is who prays every day and is stuck in mortal sin, that if they are not intent on self-denial and a ruthless resolve to die, as St. Teresa of Avila says, 1,000 deaths rather than falling into that mortal sin again, is delusion. Is delusion. What do I mean by that? Very often, and this usually happens, this usually doesn't happen with younger people, but it does happen with older people. I'll give an example. There's a priest. I'm sitting in the confession, minding my own business. And someone walks in. And, like I said, maybe they're and They say, all right, Father, um, it's been... 20 years since my last confession. These are the And in this tone of voice that I just shared without any time I notice. They say their sins, and then, okay, and with any of these sins, have you received more than me? Well, yes, I have received you. Because Jesus is there. Jesus loves me. Isn't that right? Jesus loves me. He wants to be received more than me. Over and over again, we come to justify even their own sins. With a confession like that, a priest will find that there are some sins that they are not sorry for. I am not sorry for um, having sex outside of marriage with the man that I'm not married to because I love him. And I don't believe, for instance, that I'm that my marriage is still um, uh, valid with this person I'm divorced. It would be something like that. The point is, is that the person who quits trying to give up their mortal sin cannot live without love. And so the danger is that they will delusionally imagine a relationship with God that does not exist. I could not imagine a more terrifying place to be. And this is very possible for all of us. Keeping the moral life is the only certitude that we have that we are within God's grace. I cannot emphasize this enough, and perhaps you've been catechized not clearly, but by intuition, differently, that grace is not a feeling. Grace philosophically cannot be a feeling. The reason is because grace affects something that is beyond your feelings. The feelings have to do with the body. St. Thomas Aquinas says that grace augments the soul. The soul is beyond the body, right? It forms the body. But, just as we said earlier, God is above our senses. This is why, by the way, and I've said to many of this to you before, that as the mystics grow deep, closer and closer to God, their experience of God is as nothing. God is no thing. He's beyond all things. 
They experience this, what we call, dark night of the soul. It's incredibly excruciating, difficult. Why? Because they are leaving their love for earthly things so they can attach themselves to being itself, to God himself. And so if we tell ourselves, well, I know that even if it's not a mortal sin, even if I'm just attached to a deliberate venial sin, I know that God wants me to keep this. He wants me to stay in this sinful relationship. He doesn't care that I look at adult explicit content because I still feel good when I go to church. We are fooling ourselves. The only objective litmus test that we have to know that we are in God's grace is by living the moral life by living the moral life. Again, God's grace is not measured by man's lowest faculty, his senses. Could you imagine that? Like, I I just want to take a side note about that. Could you imagine if the church and all of her authority rested upon, and a lot of people say this, which is why I'm bringing it up, rested upon, well, you just got to feel it. Like, I have the feeling of God. You don't. You just got to feel it. That would suck. We would be a bunch of idiots. Like, we are just pointing ourselves just to some feeling. Well, sorry, just like my cousin, like, she just doesn't feel it, you know, and so I can't give her the faith. The faith rests upon the authority of God and the historical fact of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so in the same way, our prayer needs to rest upon the authority of God, the historical facts, and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It cannot rest upon some nebulous feeling that I have. And so for the person who is in mortal sin and pray, reject the danger of delusion and be ruthless to keep the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the minimum of, the minimum of charity. And as St. Teresa of Avila says, I would rather die a thousand deaths than to commit another mortal sin. Without this, no, spir- no progress can be made in the spiritual life. Without this, no progress can be made in the spiritual life. The reason is because in keeping the commandments, we love God who has poured himself out for his neighbor, and who has become our neighbor in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in honoring and in loving our neighbor, and in giving God his due worship, we come into the particular contact with Jesus Christ. Other than that, our spiritual life is abstract. It is amorphous. It is something that we can make up to where we no longer in prayer conform ourselves to God's image and likeness, but now we have done one of the most dangerous things, conformed God into our image and likeness. Okay. So then, my next category. And I'm going to stop it with the categories here, but... Um, there are, 
obviously more categories. I pray steadily, but my prayer is empty and stagnant. I pray every day, but I've been doing the same thing. Or maybe I try different things, but I'm not really making any progress. And it's empty, and I really haven't changed honestly um, since I've been praying, or for a long time. This, of course, in the parable, in terms of the parable of the prodigal son, is the older son. The older son. He's been living in the father's house all this time. But he does not feel connected to the father. And fundamentally, he obviously does not take pleasure in serving the father. And we can conclude that whenever he says, why do you get a goat for me and some of my friends? He doesn't enjoy it. He wouldn't invite his dad to party. He'd be like the high schooler that'd be like, come on, mom, please leave the house. I've got my friends over. Please leave the house. It's like, does not want parents to be around. In other words, like what, what is an indicator that you don't want your parents to be around? What does that indicate about yourself? You're hiding something from them. It shows them that there's some part of your personality or some friend or something else that you don't want to show. And so the person that prays regularly but is stuck needs to persevere in removing attachments. Persevere in removing attachments. And so within the story of salvation history, this has to do with the mission of the prophets, who wanted not just burnt offerings, but the true conversion of heart. So what this means is that I have to continually probe myself. Again, before we go ascend up to God, we must descend down with him. This is the story, of course, of man in the new Adam. If he is to redeem man, then he has to descend down into hell, and then he must reascend into heaven. And so it is with us. If we are stuck in prayer, we need to figure out what bits of the fig leaf are we still scotch-taping on. Like, what are we hiding from him? And maybe we don't know. Maybe we don't know. But what we can do to figure out if that's not popping up in prayer is by living the moral life more deeply. To where we, like the truck analogy, we hit on the gas, we try to love people that are really difficult to love, or we make sacrifices that we have not made, and then you kind of figure out like what's wrong. This happens to all the guys every year whenever we do Exodus 90. So, like we had 20 guys do Exodus 90 this past year. For those who don't know, Exodus 90 is this program where guys commit to using no extra media use, cold shower every day, fasting and abstaining on Wednesdays and Fridays of every week, holy hour every day, daily examine. Um, I remember, yeah, like there's there's always the guy that like comes in and is going to say like, man, I come in, I'm going to kick Exodus 90's butt, you know, and it's going to be me. But what ends up happening 
is that it reveals a lot of attachments that they didn't realize they had. Like it was like, yeah, like I watch YouTube before I go to sleep, but I can do away with that. Like I have Snapchat, but like, yeah, I can do away with that. And then they're just like hankering, you know? They're hankering for some swipes. They just can't get over it. They don't know what to do with their thumb, you know? They can't handle it. Um, Or they recognize all the side effects that come from that. It's like, I had no idea that I cannot pay attention in a conversation. Like, I had no idea that I cannot have a deep thought. All of those things come up. And so for the person who is stuck, who is stuck, they're praying every day, but they don't know what's wrong, they need to continually probe themselves. And where they cannot probe themselves any longer, they must exercise the virtue of charity. They must give themselves in more radical and radical ways. And not just in doing good things. Remember, the older son, he does all the things that the father wants him to. But he needs to put his heart into it in a sincere and honest way. And that will show the attachments. And that will be the opportunity that we have to accept the father back in. So, now I want to move in then. Oh, shoot. No. I might have to end the talk right there. Wow, I talked for way longer than I thought I would. Okay. Um, But I'm going to talk longer. Okay. Um, Because I don't want to just simply make a bunch of observations about how people live their life. I want to uh, talk briefly about just generally how do I begin a prayer life? How do I begin a prayer life? I'm just going to give some principles. Okay, so first, we're going to call this remote preparation. The way that I prepare prepare for prayer before I even show up into the chapel. So, again, as you've probably got the sense that prayer is not just about the 30 minutes that I spend in the chapel or the hour I spend in the chapel every day. Because if so, then the person in moral sin can just show up at the chapel every day and say, like, oh, yeah, I'm good at prayer. If there ever was such a thing, if prayer was like some skill that I had to master rather than prayer is the way in which God masters me, you know. Um, but regardless, um, or like to say, like, yeah, my prayer life is great, but I'm really struggling with this sin. Like, oh, maybe we're getting a little delusional again, right? Um, no, so remote preparation. I'm going to give you, yeah, I think four, yeah, four or five steps, four or five notes. So first, we must remember that prayer depends fundamentally on the grace of God. Prayer depends fundamentally on the grace of God. So, again, you can't, like, be good at praying, you know? Like, this is a sheer gift that God invites me into relationship with himself. Because God is above our nature. He's supernatural. That means that we are not capable of attaining union with him. He must find us. But, with that, 95% of prayer is literally showing up. Just sit down in a church or kneel down on a church and begin to let God work. Just 
Again, make that ruthless desire to never, 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 not pray. Okay, but then secondly, the way that we remotely prepare ourselves for prayer is humility and mortification, self-denial. The object of prayer, as we heard in today's first reading, is to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, and strength. It's to be in communion with God. That means that if I'm going to pray, I have to deny myself of things that I love more than God if I'm going to really progress in the life of prayer. That's kind of it. Now, there are obviously some things in my life that like, I might love more than God that are fundamental to my life, you know, like my parents, you know. Uh, maybe it's friends. Maybe it's my schoolwork. Maybe it's my job. But within that, we need to detach from whatever is giving us selfish pleasure within those things. And then, as well, humility. To recognize God is the one who is, I am the one who is not, as Catherine of Siena says. Thirdly, to attain to, our, to this life of prayer, we must, in the course of the day, often lift our hearts to God and converse with Christ about everything. Throughout the course of the day, what that means and the implications of what Father Broussard said. Like why, do you, why do you have your social media accounts? Why do you have them? So, God is above all things. Whatever requires deep prayer, the giving the experience of God is like no thing. Social media, whatever else, TikTok, is like literally meant to do the opposite thing. It's the inverse of contemplation. Where I'm just considering all these rapid ideas over 10 second videos, and it turns me into an idiot. It just like, I'm not able to think deep thoughts. And what is needed to converse with God throughout the day is silence. Because God requires not only that we speak to him with words, but to lift our hearts to him. As he says, the prophet Isaiah, this is a wretched people that speaks to me with their lips, but keeps their hearts away. We must have our hearts close to God throughout the day. Whether that is actually conversing with him about ideas or simply acknowledging his presence and being with him while I am doing something or while I am with someone. Fourthly, in order to be able to do that, and this is reiterating what I've said, is create silence in the soul. So there's exterior silence, which has to do, again, with our media use primarily in this day and age, um, all maybe like Maybe I can't, like Father Bruce was saying, I can't be with myself. And the way in which, like, maybe I don't have a lot of people with me, but I have a lot of noises going on. Like, I can't sit in my car in silence. I can't uh, just, like, I don't know, uh, do the dishes without a podcast playing. Uh, so on and so forth. I need to be able to be with myself. But that hopefully cultivates interior silence. Exterior silence eventually cultivates interior silence because what interior noise is, is that my heart, my mind desire all these other things. This going back to the second person who prays occasionally, this is his problem. Whenever he goes to sit down and pray, he's got interior noise. His flesh is all over the place. He desires a million different things. This is a beautiful 
thing. This is St. Augustine's story, by the way, of his conversion. He says that as he is hearing this like desire to pull back from his unchastity, and he has this little girl in the garden saying, pick up and read, pick up and read this, this scripture passage to like leave the flesh behind. He feels these things tugging on the garments of his flesh, he says. Tugging on the garments of his flesh. We need to be able to deny satisfying even lawful desires. Even desires, it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. It's not a sin. The question is, is it leading me closer to God? Because if I deny myself of those things, with greater liberty of heart, can I ascend to God? Okay. And then, um, finally, to know that, like, I can, you know, as uh, some people would say, I can pray while I work, but I can't work while I pray. You know what I mean? Like, like devote some time just to prayer. But then when I'm not praying, pray while I'm doing that thing. Okay. Last thing, this will take five minutes. Um, what to do within prayer. What to do within prayer. So I show up to the chapel. This is proximate preparation for prayer, or the act itself. Well, proximate preparation, let me say this. There is a natural ladder to prayer that we climb, and it's necessary that we climb this ladder, and this could be its own talk. But I'll just show the first three rungs. Um, effective. Okay. That's the ladder. So, when I go to pray, I should have something that I'm going to pray with. Whether that is, like, as far as meditation. So, vocal prayer, we know this. Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory be. All the other vocal prayers. Praise that are, praise that are prayed out loud. Meditation means that I'm putting my mind on some topic. So, like, for instance, right now, whenever I go to the chapel and I do mental prayer, I am praying with the book of Sirach. And Sirach is, I think, like 50 chapters. I am on chapter 21, and I only pray with these, what are called pericopes. These are like the sections in the Bible in between chapters. Like, if I were to pray with the whole chapter, it would be too much for the mind to consider. The whole point of prayer is that I'm lifting my mind up to God. I'm not dragging it down, which means when you go to pray with Scripture, don't read the footnotes. Like, read the footnotes after or before, but when you actually go to pray, don't read them. And don't play Bible roulette either, you know? Like, stick with something that is a constant conversation with God. This is the Word of God. So, I am going to uh, pick a topic to consider. And that doesn't have to be Scripture. It could be like, for instance, as maybe I do my daily exam and I notice, okay, I'm a very envious person. I'm a very uh, proud person. I need to pray with that. I need to pray on how to grow in humility or how to grow in generosity or charity. 
Um, so having that topic, or maybe it's a scene in the scriptures, or maybe it's an attribute of God, the goodness of God. After that, there are five virtues that we are going to exercise. And stay with me again, I just have a few more minutes. After these five virtues, um, yeah, we'll be done. So, number one, humility. Number two, faith. Number three, hope. Number four, love. And number five, abandonment to God's will. Okay. So, humility. Thou art God, I am not. Practically, you should probably begin your first few minutes in prayer kneeling, like practically. Placing my body in a certain position helps my mind to follow and my mind set. If I immediately go into prayer and just like lounging out, I'm putting myself in the position just to kind of indulge myself. But the act of kneeling is humbling. And so begin in humility, and as we heard in that first reading, the way that the man approaches Jesus, Lord have mercy. Even if I don't have a sin coming to mind, I know by his authority, even though not by my own opinion, have mercy on me, Lord. Lord have mercy. Okay, after that, faith. So faith is a virtue of the intellect, which means that I have to consider a mystery of God. This is your preparation whether it's the scripture passage, whether maybe it's a mystery of the rosary. So, for example, we'll walk through a mystery of the rosary together. Those who have been on silent treat or BCB, you know what I'm about to do. But we are now considering the visitation of Mary. So I'm going to consider Mary walking into Elizabeth's home. I'm going to make that presence in my mind. I'm going to take some time when I go to pray doing this, too. I'm going to consider, okay, what is Mary like? What is Elizabeth like? And I don't have to make this up. I can read the Bible, you know, like, like don't let your meditation be this. And I'm sorry if I offend you whenever, whenever, whenever I say this. But don't let your meditation look like this. So there it was. I saw Mary, you know, walking into Elizabeth. And then... You know, Mary went to greet Elizabeth, and she had these rosy cheeks, she had this beautiful blonde hair, and within Mary's womb, Jesus was wearing this tuxedo t-shirt. And Mary then looks to me, and she says, let's get coffee, you know? And so we go off to the coffee shop, and then we're in the cafe, and we're just playing Pedro in the cafe with Mary, you know? And, and then after that, she starts asking about my life, you know, and what I like to do. And it's like, okay, we're creating Mary more and more being our image, okay? Let's stick with the scene that's revealed in Scripture, okay? Let's, let, let's enter into Christ's life more than we try to fit Christ into our life. So to consider the scene with faith, Consider it what the scriptures say and with the truths that we know. Consider less 
the externals, rather than the truths that are uh, present there. The truth that Mary is the Theotokos, the God-bearer, coming to Elizabeth, who has the prophet in her womb, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament. So that the new and the old are coming together, and then I'm considering how Mary greets Elizabeth as saying to all of humanity that, like, I am here. I'm here to be of assistance. I'm here to be of help. That this is Mary with Christ who would say this, and then humanity would then rejoice. John leaps within Elizabeth's womb to that message. And then Mary magnifies uh, the works of the Lord um, by doing magnifying, right? Like, this is what, like, faith looks like. But as I'm considering this, and this is going to naturally unfold of your heart, if you're humble, then hope will happen. So you say, okay, I hope that I can have the generosity and the humility of Mary. I hope that I can attain to that. Now, again, I can only hope insofar as I kind of know what's going on and I have faith in that. And then from that hope and that aspiration to leave behind perhaps my pride and my envy to attain to that humility and that love and generosity, there comes love. And love has two parts. It is both affective, that is, I desire it, and it is effective. And this is important in prayer lest you lose the graces that are given to you. You put the thing that you're praying about into practice. You put it into effect. To where you're saying, I love Mary's generosity that she disregards her own labor pains to go and visit Elizabeth. And then you say, okay, who in my life am I so self-centered around that I do not recognize their needs and I will put into effect a more... uh, diligent attitude towards service. And then after that, I abandon myself to God's will. Lord, not as uh, I will, but as you will. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we ask that the work that you have begun in us, by your grace, you may bring to fulfillment. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Our Lady City Wisdom.